0: Father, we thank you for an opportunity this morning to open your word and to allow you to speak through James to us. We ask that you would inspire us, that you would encourage us, that you would embolden us, and that you would give us strength to live our lives for you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the last decade or so, there has been a great deal of interest in media in the United States and around the world in what we might call, it's probably painting with broad brushstrokes, but talent shows. Uh, You're probably familiar with one or two, at least names of these talent shows. There is The Voice, there is American Idol, There is Dancing with the Stars. What are some of the other ones that are popular out there that you've heard of? Britain's Got Talent, Talent. yep. What about any others? The X Factor, the Sing-Off. So there's a lot of them out there. And I wanted to touch on something that happened just a few years ago. In fact, on April 11th, 2009, on one of those shows called Britain's Got Talent. On that date... Contestant number 43,212 took the stage. That should tell you how popular that particular show is. Well, as contestant 43,212 took the stage, nobody took a whole lot of interest in her. She was dressed rather plainly. She was 47 years old. She wasn't what you would probably call fit. And when she took the stage, the three judges kind of looked at her askance. You could kind of see that the audience that was assembled that day there in the hall was unmoved. And as the judges began to talk with her to find a little bit more about her, the answers that she gave, we might call a little cheeky. And you could see people shift uncomfortably in their seats, roll their eyes and shake their heads. Finally, the judges asked her what song she would be singing. The answer that she gave is she would be singing I Dreamed a Dream from Les Miserables. And again, there was a hush. The judges said, okay, go ahead. And the music track began to play. When Contestant 43,212 opened her mouth to sing, you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody was hushed for about 20 seconds. And then the entire auditorium erupted in cheers. People stood to their feet, they cheered, they were astounded by the sound that was coming from this woman's lips. At the end of her song, which didn't last but a couple of minutes, the judges said, we loved it and we want you to go on to the next round. Now, not only did she go on to the next round, about six months later, she released her debut album, which became the best-selling debut album in the history of the United Kingdom. She topped the Billboard charts for six weeks straight In 2009, she was the second-highest album seller in the United States. She sang before the Queen of England, she sang before the Pope, she sang at the White House. Within a year of her becoming famous, she was worth over six million pounds. That's not a bad income for a year. I checked yesterday to see what the current total of views was on YouTube for that particular song. 236 million views. That's a lot of views. Anybody happen to know this woman's name? Susan Boyle. I just heard that from about 50 to 75% of you. You know who she is. Here, here's the truth. Here's the truth, though. When she walked on that stage, was she misjudged? Yes. Nobody could see beneath the exterior what was on the inside. That gift of song, if you will. Nobody saw that. And everybody judged her based on what they could see. Do we misjudge people today, yes or no? We frequently do. I'm gonna end on that note, but I wanna go back to begin this message to James chapter three and the first part of James chapter four. Uh, Josh very deftly walked us through James chapter three and the first part of James chapter four last week. I wanna recap a little bit of what he shared because it provides us with the, the the framework, the groundwork upon which the latter part of James chapter four is built. So in James chapter four, verse number one, the passage begins here. It says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your what? Desires for what? Pleasure and war in your members. You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask how? You ask amiss. You're asking for the wrong things, James says, that you may spend it on your pleasures. So what is the big problem that James tries to help us see exists in us today? If we were to put it in one or two words, what would the big problem be? It would be self or self-interest. How many of you have some measure of interest in yourself? Okay, is, is it wrong to have a measure of interest in yourself? No, of course not. But if that self interest is elevated too much to an inappropriate level, does it cause problems? Yes, we often call it self ishness. You know, who is our biggest enemy, truly? It's ourselves. Our, tr- our biggest enemy truly is ourselves. Verse number four. James really begins to drill down. He does not mince any words when he talks about this subject. In verse number four, he says adulterers and adulteresses. Now, you are really not beating around the bush when you begin to address a group of people with those words. That is a very direct address. He says adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is what? Is enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Basically what James says is there are two sides. There is God's side and there is the world's side. Is James the only one who addresses this issue in the Bible? No, he's not. In fact, let's turn over, keep a marker or a finger here in James 4, but let's turn over to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12 we're going to look together at verse number 30. Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 30. And if you happen to have a red letter Bible, you will notice that these letters are indeed in red. And that indicates that who is speaking here? That Jesus is speaking here. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 30, Jesus says, He who is not with me is what? Is against me, and he who does not gather with me does what? scatters abroad. So basically Jesus says there are two sides. There's my side and then there's everything else is not my side. Is that a fair assessment of it? There's my side and then there's the other side. Now it's interesting that right after he makes this statement, he who is not with me is against me and he who who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Then he begins speaking about another subject. Well, a related subject. In verse 31, He says, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. So right after Jesus says that there are two sides, then he begins speaking about another subject. What is that subject? What do we often call it? We call it the the unpardonable sin. So if we choose to elevate ourselves above an appropriate level, are we in danger? Can we be in danger of committing the unpardonable sin? It got very quiet. Can we be in danger, yes or no? Yes, we can. So it is a very serious subject that Jesus speaks of. It's also one that James draws our attention back to. In fact, let's go back just a little bit further. In fact, just uh, quite a bit further to the book of Joshua. Turn over to the book of Joshua. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. These passages should be, I think, familiar to many of us. Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. All the way back, just after the books of Moses, to the book of Joshua. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. He writes, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. What are the next three words? Serve Serve the Lord. How many of you think that's a good idea? Serve the Lord, he says. Serve the Lord. Then he says, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, say it with me we will serve the Lord. That's good counsel for any Christian. As for me in my house, he says, we will serve the Lord. So back over in the book of James, in James chapter four, he says there are two sides. And he says, if you choose to side with the world, you have become the enemy of God. But if you choose to side with God, you're in essence becoming the enemy of the world. So we can't have it both ways. One of the greatest challenges that we face in Christianity today is that Christians, and again, I'm painting here with broad strokes, often want to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Does it work? Yes or no? No, it doesn't. Jesus says you're either with me or you're against me. In the end, there are going to be two groups. There are going to be the saved and there are going to be the lost. Will there be a group that is called the almost saved? Yes, there will. They're also called the, the lost. It's the same group, right? See, being almost saved is like being almost pregnant. True, yes or no? Yes. If you're almost pregnant, it means you are not. It's pretty cut and dry. It's, it's straightforward. And so what James is saying is, as you're living toward the end of time, the days in which we live, he says, we have to choose who we are going to follow, who we are going to serve. In verse number five, he says, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Now, if we were to stop right there, many of us would probably be discouraged because how many of you have ever tried to do the right thing, tried to live right, tried to keep the commandments. You've You've bared down, you've grit your teeth, you've pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, you've tried harder and tried again, and you've still failed. Any of you done that before? Okay, if you have a heartbeat, probably you've been there, okay? But then we get to verse number six. And verse number six, as Josh pointed out, is a beautiful verse. It is a powerful verse. In verse number six, he, be, he begins with these words, but he gives more what? Grace. He gives more grace. Who gives more grace? God does. He gives us more grace. What is grace? Is grace simply forgiveness for sin? No, it's not. Is it forgiveness of sin? Yes, but it's not just forgiveness of sin. It is more than that not just forgiveness of sin but what else is it it is power to live a new life it's not just being able to come to god and say lord forgive me i'm sorry that i fill in the blank did xyz and then next week you go and do xyz again and you come back and say lord forgive me and you keep going back over and it's not a revolving door it's not intended to be a revolving door when we ask forgiveness in sincerity Will he forgive our sins? Yes or no? How many of you know 1 John 1, 9? Know 1 John 1, 9? Many of you do. For those of you who aren't familiar with the, the reference, maybe once we start saying it, it'll kind of come back. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if there is a sin that we have committed and we confess that to him, his promise is he will do what? he will forgive it, but not just forgive it, it says he will also cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that good news, yes or no? That is fantastic news, it is wonderful news. He gives more grace because of God's love for his people. He has a supply of grace that he wants to continue giving us. That forgiveness, but also that power to live a brand new life a power to develop our Christian character day by day, moment by moment. Are any of you here today perfect? Anybody here who's perfect? All right, I'm encouraged. That means I'm not alone. But how many of you, as you look at your life some years ago, realize that you're not in the same state that you were several years ago? But that you have made progress have any of you seen any progress over the years so what does that mean that means that god has given you grace and with that grace he has also given you power power to live a new life power to live differently now take a look at verse number seven in verse number seven james begins a list of ten imperatives 10 imperatives that he gives to you and to me to experience that grace, to experience that power that God wants to give to you and me, that God wants to give to his people. So let's begin with verse number seven, and we're going to run very quickly through these 10 imperatives. If we want the grace, if we want the power, he gives us a roadmap. Now, before, before I look at this, I want to sort of see if I can draw a picture, if you will. I'm going to date myself here just a little bit. Back when I started in ministry, we didn't have these fancy things called GPSs. Right? We didn't have cell phone apps to help you get from point A to point B. We had this, this big monstrous paper thing was folded in an impossible way to get refolded. And if you wanted to get from point A to point B, sometimes you needed three or four of these dead trees. And you would link them together and you would try to figure out how you would get from here. It's called a what? It's called a map. How many of you remember those things? Okay, you're old too. Good. (laughs) When we would drive from one church across the country to another church to speak, we would have to use maps. Now, I'll I'll open to you a a little window into uh, my strengths and weaknesses, my my pet peeves, if you will. Um, I, I do a lot of driving, and I enjoy driving, I really do. My wife is a good driver over short distances because if she drives for more than about half an hour, something happens to her upper eyelids. They get very heavy, extremely heavy. And if you're driving across the country, that's not always a good combination. And so she would frequently navigate, which meant that she got to hold the map. Now, how many of you are aware that men and women our brains work a little differently. (laughs) Okay. When I am navigating, and I don't think there's a right and wrong way, there are merely different ways of approaching things. If I'm navigating for you, and you say, Eric, which way should I go? Drive forward for about a mile, then turn left, go for about two miles, then turn right, go for about two more miles, and then you'll reach your destination. If I were to ask my wife where to go, go forward for about two miles, then turn left, then go forward for about another three miles, then turn right, then, and the map is spinning. I suppose you get to the same destination. You just burn a few more calories doing it this way, I guess. (laughs) But it would always worry me when we would get to a big city, because there's interstates crisscrossing one another and so forth. She knows where we're going to go with this one. What city did we hate navigating through more than about any other? Nashville. Nashville. Nashville, if you don't know the interstates and you miss an exit, some of you groaned, you've been there. It was bad. But then they invented this wonderful thing called a GPS, which meant a couple of wonderful things happened. First of all, the GPS didn't do this on your dashboard, right? (laughs) It just kind of sat there and let you look at it, which I thought was really cool. But if the GPS is working, that means my wife gets to do something. What does she get to do? She gets to sleep. And that's a wonderful thing, too. Interpret that correctly. (laughs) Anyway, I like roadmaps. I like directions. Do this, do that, one, two, three, number it down, give me a checklist, I'm happy. That's what James does here. In James 4, verse number seven. He begins this list of 10 imperatives. If you want to experience the grace and the power of God in your life, here's what he says. Therefore, what's the first thing? Submit to God. Second thing is resist the devil and he will flee from you. Third thing is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Then cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded That's the fifth one. Verse nine. What else? Lament and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Then verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And we're going to come to number 10 very shortly, but I want to dwell for just a few moments on those first nine. We're not going to unpack all of them in a great deal of detail, but it does help to kind of look at the general theme in verse number seven. He gives us this counsel. He says, submit to God. Is that easy to do? If it were easy, wouldn't, wor- wouldn't the world be a better place? Now, is it easy, yes or no? Depends on your perspective, doesn't it? You know, it's not easy to say, I surrender. But the Christian walk is the only battle that you can win by surrendering. That's it, you have to surrender, otherwise you lose. By giving up, you win. By fighting, you lose. It's almost a a dichotomy. It, It doesn't work, only it does. So he tells us, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, notice again here that he doesn't just say, he doesn't begin that verse with, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Have you ever resisted the devil and he didn't flee from you? We've been there because we fight the battle ourselves. And when you fight the battle yourself, this is simple math here. Let's think about this. Who is more powerful, you or the devil? The devil, every single time, no question. So if you're fighting against him, you will lose. Sooner or later, it'll happen. Next question, who is more powerful, the devil or God? God God is every single day of the week. So if you want to win this battle, who do you need to enlist on your side? You need God and his strength and his power and his grace on your side. And the good news here in verse number six, he gives more grace so how does this how does this work it's a story that i've told a number of times i'm sure in the sabbath school class that i attend here on a regular basis and for those of you who are in my sabbath school class you get to hear the story again but for those of you who haven't it's a simple little story but it makes so much sense to me it's the story of a little girl who is playing with jesus on the floor of the living room they're playing with some toys And as they're there playing, there's a knock at the door. And so the little girl gets up, she walks across the floor to the door, she opens up the door, and out there standing on the doorstep is the old devil himself. And the devil looks down at the little girl, and he smiles at her. And the little girl looks up at the devil, and she smiles at him. And then she calls back over her shoulder, Jesus, it's for you. Such a simple story. But how very true. You know, if the little girl had decided to try to tell the devil to take a hike, it doesn't work. But if it's the devil versus Jesus, that battle's won. So all we need to do is say, I'm not driving anymore. Have you seen the bumpers that, bumper stickers that say Jesus is my co-pilot? You know, What we really need is to just give it to him. If you're still in the pilot's seat, you've got problems. He needs to have it. How much of it? All. All of it. Jesus said, you're either with me or you are against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. He says, it's all or nothing. Give it to him and he will help you to get where you need to go so how do we how do we do this take a look over at the book of Hebrews Hebrews 12 verse 9 if you're in the book of James Hebrews is not hard to find backwards one book to the book of Hebrews Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number nine Hebrews 12 9 says furthermore we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them what respect shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? It says, if we've shown respect, if we've obeyed our earthly parents, how much more should we obey our father who is in heaven? So it says there also, let's go back over to James again. James four, verse number seven, he says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do we resist the devil? Well, we already know that we need to enlist Jesus' help to do that. How did, let me ask you this question. How did Jesus resist the devil? Was Jesus ever tempted by the devil? Okay, how many of you have been tempted by the devil? Okay, is Jesus our example? Yes, Yes, he is. So if we wanna know how to resist the devil, one thing we could do is look at how Jesus resisted the devil. Back in the book of Matthew, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And afterward, he was, the Bible says, he was an hungered would you be hungry if you had not eaten for 40 days how hungry would you be you'd be very hungry in fact you might be tempted to eat stones they might start looking really good if you hadn't eaten anything for 40 days and so the devil comes to tempt jesus and he says oh well if you're the son of god why don't you command these stones to be made bread And how did Jesus resist the temptation of the devil? He said, oh, wait a minute, I'm sorry, what was that? It is written, I love that verse, don't you? It's a great verse. He says, no, I'm not gonna turn those stones to bread. Then the devil said, well, then how how about this? And he took Jesus and he took him to the top of the temple, if you will, looking over, and he says, why don't you just cast yourself down? And The Bible says that the angels will catch you. What did Jesus say? Oh, there are those wonderful words again, right? He says it is written, right? Don't tempt the Lord your God So the devil says all right, listen if you want the worship of the world Why don't you just just bow down and worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world and what did Jesus say? It is written he's over and over again. It was the same thing Where did Jesus get his faith? Did he, did he study the scriptures? Did he commit the scriptures to memory? How do you know he committed the scriptures to memory? Because he quoted it constantly, right? We've been memorizing the book of James together. I don't know how much you've participated, hopefully at least some, because there's a high likelihood that at some point, that which you have committed to memory, you're gonna need. You're gonna need it in a time of temptation. And so Jesus shared the word of God, that power, that strength, when it was needed. There's a powerful passage from the book, The Desire of Ages on page number 130 that says through submission and faith to God, every Christian can do the same. The same way that Jesus resisted the devil is the same way that you and I can. Did Jesus fall? Yes or no? No. Can God give us the strength to stand as well? Yes, not in our own strength, but in his. So he says, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. The reason that many Christians don't overcome the challenges that they face is that they flee at a speed where it's likely that they want to get caught. You follow me? If you are fleeing for your life, how quickly are you trying to run? You're trying to get out of there as fast as your little legs will carry you. Some of us are going, Boy, well, I sure hope that doesn't catch me. Is it going to catch us? It's going to catch us. But flee. The weakest man, Desire of Ages, page 131, the very next page after that last quote, the weakest man who finds refuge in the power of Christ will cause Satan to tremble and flee. The weakest person. You may not consider yourself very, very strong. You may have fallen more than once or twice, more than a dozen times. That doesn't mean that you cannot live in the power and victory of Christ. In fact, that may mean that you have an advantage over other people. Because when we begin to think highly of ourselves, we put ourselves in danger. But when we realize that we are, are weak, that is when we truly become what? Strong. Verse number nine says, Lament and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, some of you maybe look at that and say, that sounds like a very depressing verse. You know, let your lament and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Do you think that, do you think that James, do you think that God wants us to be miserable? No. He wants us to have life and have it more abundantly. He wants us to have a peace that passes all understanding. So what is this? lament and gloom and misery and mourning and weeping well a writer a hey writer how's that for good english a better understanding of this word laughter here is not what we might call a sanctified joy but it is the frivolous laughter that occupies so much of our time these days how many of you have ever heard of the entertainment industry? Okay. The entertainment industry, supposedly, is there to kind of give us a, a release from the stresses of life. You listen to music that the entertainment industry gives us, you watch movies that the entertainment industry feeds to us, and so forth, and it, it's supposed to help us. Let me ask you a very straight question. Do you think that the entertainment industry is really there to just entertain you? It took me a while to, to get this, but eventually I began to see some, some things that have changed my view very much from my view of the entertainment industry when I was in high school and college. I thought, ah, it's just some place to go, watch a movie, listen to this, watch that on TV, no big deal. Then I began to realize they want to change the way we think. They want to influence what we consider right and wrong, and they're very good at it. Now, I'm not going to suggest that you go out there and watch a movie just to test this hypothesis, but should you go out and watch something the next time in the theater, ask yourself this question, what message are they trying to get across? Here's what you will frequently find. If it's a movie that stars a lot of young people, more often than not, the parents are out of touch with reality. Those who are in positions of authority are using that position of authority to hold down those who are younger or less experienced. And so what happens during the course of whatever film it may happen to be or TV program? Well, the young people end up being the smart ones. They're the ones who figure out the problem, and they kind of put the parents to shame. Is that the picture that the Bible gives us when it talks about how the young and the not so young should relate one to another, it's flipping everything on its head. So let your laughter, that frivolous laughter, let that be turned to mourning. In other words, this is serious. It's not something to just be cast aside. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Now, verse number eleven. Here is the tenth, the tenth of these ten imperatives that James gives us. And as I mentioned, Josh very, uh, very admirably and deftly led us through verse number ten last week. So we pick up in verse number eleven. James says, "Do not speak evil of one another, brethren." He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Up until this point, chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4, James talks about the words that we speak and how we cut each other down with those things. We, we hurt each other because those words come forth from self-interest or selfishness. And then in verse 11, he introduces a new idea that builds on that. He says, once you start to speak evil of other people, then he says you begin to judge them. And when we start to judge one another, how does that often make us feel? Makes us feel better about ourselves. Do you know why daytime uh, talk shows are so popular? One of the reasons why daytime talk talk shows are so popular? Because you listen to the stories of the people who are on those talk shows, and you say, man, my, my, my life may not be very good, but at least I'm not like them and it makes us feel better. We start to judge and condemn others. But the problem is he says, who are you to judge? He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of, of what else? The law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now who made the law? God made the law. So if we are looking down on the law, that would mean we're also looking down on the lawgiver. We need to be very careful about judging one another. Verse 12, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, he says, you say. Today, and tomorrow, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit wherefore you do not know what will happen tomorrow for what is your life it is even a vapor how long how long does a breath last it's very quick it's finished in what a second maybe a couple depending on whether you're at rest or not he says your life is basically a vapor it's reduced to a breath do we know whether we will breathe again we don't we hope we will we pray we will But do any of us have a guarantee that we're going to be alive in the next 60 seconds? Not a one of us. He says, your life is a vapor. Wherefore, do do you not know, verse 14, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So there is this concept that James wants us to understand that we are not judges. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know the underlying motives of why a person does or doesn't do something. Only one knows that. And who is that? That's God. We need to be very, very careful because it is very easy to misjudge people. Yes or no? How many of you have been misjudged at some point in the past? Somebody thought something of you that wasn't true. It's easy to misjudge people. How does someone become a judge? Do they just wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I'm gonna be a judge today. Is that how that happens? No, it happens over a long period of time. A person goes to school, they become a lawyer, they eventually become a judge. Now let's, have any of you noticed in the last few years some discussion in the news about Supreme Court nominees, right? Unless you've been living under a rock, you've noticed that there's a lot of discussion about Supreme Court nominees. So there's a nomination, and after the nomination, then begins something called an investigation to see whether this person should truly be appointed to that position. In an investigation, how deep do they go? they go deeper than you would feel comfortable, somebody going into your life. And they dig up all kinds of things. And if it should happen to go well enough, then there is the confirmation. The Supreme Court Court justices that we have sitting on the bench today, they went to schools like Columbia, Harvard, Oxford, Yale, and the list goes on and on. Maybe you've attended and graduated from those schools. I didn't. But those are prestigious schools. When somebody becomes a judge, I, I had a, an uncle who was a federal magistrate. Wonderful, wonderful man. I have a great deal of respect for him. Sadly, he died in an accident a number of years ago. But I had a great deal of respect for my uncle. He didn't just become a federal magistrate. It took time. When a judge enters the courtroom or is about to enter the courtroom, there's someone called a bailiff. And the bailiff always makes a pronouncement when the judge is about to enter the courtroom. What does the bailiff say? All rise. rise. He says, all rise, the court of... Hamilton County is now in session. The Honorable Judge Bob Smith presiding. And when the bailiff says that, what does everyone in the courtroom do? They stand up. Why? Why does he say, all rise? What's the purpose? What does it do? It shows respect. Now, it shows respect to two different things. First of all, it shows respect to the judge But you know what else it shows respect to? The law. When he says, all rise, everyone in that courtroom is expected to stand and show respect for the law. Now, what happens if somebody sits there in their chair like this and doesn't rise? What is that telling everybody there in that courtroom? What's it telling them? I don't respect the the judge or I don't respect the law. I don't believe that this has any jurisdiction in my life. Friends, the Bible says that we will all one day stand before a judge. And from that court, there will be no appeal. When that pronouncement is made, all rise, we need to make sure that we understand what it's all about. So what happens if somebody doesn't rise in an earthly courtroom? Well, the judge can admonish them. He could, uh, let's see, what else can he do? He can warn them or he can also hold them in contempt of court. It's not a light thing. What about God? You know, if we don't respect him, is he worthy of our respect, yes or no? Yes. yes. But if we don't, Are the repercussions significant? Yes. He's loving, he's kind, he's forgiving. He wants us to be ready for Jesus' soon return. Take a look with me at Romans 14. We're gonna tie things off here very quickly. Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 and verse number four. In Romans 14 verse four, Paul says, who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, indeed he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand." Is God able to make us stand, yes or no? Yes. Paul says it very clearly. He wants us to know that we can stand. We can be found righteous through the blood of Christ. Not any merit of our own, nothing that we do, nothing that we conjure up in our own wills will do this, but when we recognize Jesus for who he is and what he's given to us and submit our lives to him then he gives us grace and power and strength to resist the devil the very last verse of james chapter 4 says this therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him it is what to him it is sin god wants us to be victorious jesus wants to represent us in the courts of heaven he wants us to be found righteous He wants us to be unstained, just as He is. And His blood will cover our sins if we will allow Him to be our lawyer and our judge. But what happens if we decide we want to be the judge? I'll close with this very short story. It occurred in August of 2016. There was a lawyer on the outskirts of Chicago by the name of Rhonda Crawford who through a series of events, and I won't go into great detail of how that came to pass, was handed the robes of the county judge so that she could sit and preside over a handful of traffic cases. And so she took the robes of the judge, she put them on, she sat over those three traffic cases, simple traffic cases. But when it was found that she, a lawyer, had sat in the place of a judge, she was accused of impersonating the judge. She was immediately fired from her job. Not only was she fired, she lost her law license, it was suspended. The highest court in the state barred her from being sworn in. They said, you are done. She had a court date set for about two years from the time that these events occurred. And just a few days prior to her day in court, she was found unresponsive in her home on the suburbs of Chicago. And it was ruled suicide. Friends, there is one judge, and he is a wonderful judge. He is a righteous judge, and he loves you and wants you to be saved. The question is, will we respect him as the judge and not judge others in his place? How many of you want to say, Lord, we want to let you do that? Amen.